I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land can never be purged away but with blood. I let them hang me. I forgive them and may God forgive them for they know not what they do. Craig Murray, it wasn't Julian Assange, it wasn't John Pilger, it was actually Raymond Massey, uh, the actor uh, from 18 or 1940, uh, a movie called The Santa Fe Trail, playing John Brown. Uh, and then, of course, we had Third Man in there. But the reason why I played that is because today, as we are taping, uh, is the anniversary of uh, John Brown's birthday. It'd be 220 years old today. And John Brown is one of my heroes. And uh, I figured we'd uh, uh, go off the, the, the regular uh, Assange road here and, uh, and uh, dedicate uh, some time to John Brown. Uh, people need to know about John Brown, what a pivotal figure he was in American history, what a brave man, what a courageous man, and an inspiration to me. Uh, seriously, I uh, just uh, adore John Brown. John Brown, um, William Kunstler, uh, people of that ilk, uh, Martin Luther King. He's one of the great uh, figures in American history uh, that should be recognized. And so today we're going to, um, I got this book, a couple of books here. Uh, this is John Brown uh, by David S. Reynolds, who's a, a professor at the City University in, in, in New York. Uh, he's been, he he's taught everywhere. Seriously, you, we'll talk about that. Uh, but he also graduated from uh, State Denon, from, and that's California, but he went to Berkeley, and I didn't, uh, University of California at Berkeley. He's written a ton of books on Emerson, on Walt Whitman, Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, John Brown, uh, Melville. Uh, he's got like 18, uh, 19 books, and he's really a specialist in 19th century American history. So you should stick around and listen uh, to this, or watch this. It's gonna be audio too, but uh, watch this. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, there, 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 there's one, you know, maybe a blip here and there uh, during this interview. It was a long interview. It's like an hour long. And, but it's uh, fixed by my great uh, uh, associates, uh, Kelly Lane out of North Carolina, who's actually the one that does all of the um, uh, engineering uh, for this program now that we moved out of the studio and doing this inside. And uh, Jimmy Sunderland from my state of California, where I used to vacation, Lake Arrowhead, California. My parents used to take us there. And so uh, she does the editing and uh, they'll do a fine job with this. Uh, and uh, we're gonna get right into it. So uh, this is a dedicated, we're gonna talk about journalists too, about journalists like uh, Julian Assange. I think I even mentioned his name, 
uh, who were under attack, uh, Elijah Lovejoy in particular, uh, that will uh, be uh, later on in the uh, interview with David Reynolds. Fascinating uh, individual, uh, very smart and uh, a good storyteller. And he's got a new book out uh, on Abe Lincoln that I uh, find to be an interesting uh, angle that he's going to talk about later on. All right, so we're going to go uh, right now. I believe this is, um, her name is Gloria Jane. This is a, a part of her version of John Brown's body. And we'll be back in just a minute and a half with uh, the great professor, David S. Reynolds. Oh, John Brown's body lies moaning in the grave. While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save. And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves, his truth is marching on. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave. But his truth still marches on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true, and brave. Kansas knew his valor when he fought her rights to save. And now, though the grass grows green above his grave, his truth still marches on. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave. John Brown's body lies molding in the grave, but its truth still marches on. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so few, and he frightened over Jenny till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew, but his truth still marches on. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. And his truth still marches on. Okay, that was uh, Gloria Jane, uh, John Brown's body. Um, I'm Randy Credico. Uh, this is Live on the Fly. And uh, as promised, we are now being joined on the 220th anniversary of the birth of the great abolitionist John Brown, a uh, gentleman who wrote an incredible biography about 10 years ago. And I, here it is right there. You see that? That's it. That is a, a wonderful book. I write, I even have a nice plastic covering on it, so it never goes bad. And uh, We'll get to the other book in a minute, but uh, uh, Professor uh, David S. Reynolds, uh, welcome back to Live on the Fly. Great to be here, Randy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. I, I, I want to begin with that song there, uh, uh, which was um, actually written by, um, I forgot who wrote it, uh, but I know that it was uh, changed by, uh, by Stowe. Uh, in 18, what, what year was it? 1860, 61, uh, the uh, John Brown's body, the battle hymn right. of the Republic, uh, it came from a song that was written after John Brown was executed. Just give us the history on that one. 
Yeah, well, what happened was that at the outbreak of the Civil War uh, in Massachusetts, a regiment was gathering and uh, it had been training in Massachusetts and they had a um, soldier there named John Brown who was, happened to be a Scottish guy and he was always late for drills and everything. And, and the other soldiers said, uh, oh, John Brown is is as usual tardy he's late for drill and everything and somebody said yeah he's dead and then the soldiers were singing oh brothers can you meet me uh, uh which was a methodist hymn with uh, the course glory glory hallelujah right and uh one of them just took up the uh, the anthem and, and started singing about the soldier about their uh, soldier it's kind of a joke as a joke but Pretty soon, uh, it became John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, which that same Massachusetts regiment sang lustily, thinking of the real John Brown, uh, when they marched through uh, New York. And it really caught fire uh, with the entire North. It became the most popular uh, soldier's anthem for the North in the Civil War. and. The only regiment that could no longer sing it was uh, Massachusetts, because what happened was that the, the, their John Brown died in one of the first bottle, uh, battles, and it was too pointed for them. They they they, they like to uh, to uh, joke about him, but they they really loved the guy, you know, and and he died in, in one of the first battles. But it was taken up, and Harry, P., I mean um, Julia Ward's uh, uh, Howe overheard. <laughs> A red, yeah, how regiment, uh, she overheard a regiment singing this and uh, in Washington on a carriage ride. And she went home and uh, at a hotel, she woke up at four in the morning and suddenly out exploded uh, the battle hymn of the Republic, which is basically, you know, it has the same, uh, you know, chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah, but has it also has the same fervor of the John Brown uh, body, uh, you know, with the terrible swift sword and all of that, yeah. Well, her, her father, uh, Hal's father, was uh, a big supporter of John Brown, so it really ran in the family. What can you tell me about him? Yeah, well, uh, you know, her father, uh, you know, was uh, a supporter of the Greek Revolution in the 1820s. He was an abolitionist. He also made money. Uh, he was a um, uh, Massachusetts uh, millionaire, and he, he, along with a couple of other uh, rich people, uh, including Garrett Smith uh, and George Stearns, who is another Massachusetts abolitionist, and then a few other reformers who weren't rich uh, but uh, um, were very anti-slavery, they supported John Brown, and they became the Secret Six behind John Brown. Frank Sanborn was one of those. In fact, yeah. uh, uh, here's something that I'm looking at. I'm, I, you know, I'm reading uh, the introductions or the first chapter of not only this book, which you can get online. You get this book. This is the best. I've, re I've read about 10 books on John Brown. All right. This is the one by David S. Reynolds. And I urge that you read it. This is a masterpiece. It's like 500 pages. And also this one, uh, which is uh, Mightier Than the Sword, uh, which is about um, 
uh, about um, Harry Beecher Stowe. And uh, what, what's really interesting about both early chapters or introductions is that uh, some people credit her with the conflict, uh, the Civil War, and then others um, credit uh, John Brown uh, for the uh, onslaught of the Civil War. Uh, and so you make the case for both of them in both books that they could both take credit for it. Yeah. Well, what I'm addressing in both books is the fact that it was more than just politics that caused the fall of slavery, because both of them, in a sense, went outside of politics. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote a novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was published in 1852, which was, uh, you know, uh, nine years before the outbreak of, of the Civil War, that captivated the world and changed people's opinions uh, totally about slavery in the North, in the North and uh, really converted a lot of people. But John, what John Brown does in 1859, which is seven years later, is to uh, respond to the Dred Scott decision, which completely stripped African-Americans of any rights whatsoever. And he uh, went south and said, I'm gonna start a slave insurrection to try to uh, start a series of events that he hoped would topple slavery. Now that failed, but he was captured and hanged and he became a martyr to the North. And that's why both of them together really contributed so powerfully to the end of slavery because that uh, in a way catapulted America toward the Civil War and which involved the death of 750,000 Americans but in the end, it led to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Right. Uh, and so uh, John Brown, I played at the very top uh, an excerpt from the movie Santa Fe Trail. Uh, and it's Raymond Massey uh, playing John Brown. He really plays him as a crazy guy in Kansas and Missouri killing people. Uh, you know, his eyes got stars in them. That wasn't. John Brown, that was just a Hollywood portrayal, but people have that opinion of John Brown. Yeah, he's um, unfortunately portrayed in that movie as kind of a, a wild-eyed fanatic. And that movie, uh, well, I think it came out in 1939, and it was sort of, that was like the, the height of Jim Crow. I mean, it was a bad period. And it kind of reflected the, uh, standard version of uh, slavery at that period and of John Brown as well as this kind of uh, misled fanatic. Uh, although, I mean, Raymond Massey himself was a great actor. And in another movie, he actually plays Lincoln. He actually plays Lincoln. So, you know. Yes. You've got a new book on Lincoln. We're going to talk about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For on sure. the other, after we take a break. Yeah. Uh, but um, so I just... I, <laughs> John Brown's birthday is today, right? And that was uh, in, in uh, 1800, which as you know, was a, a pivotal year. You had the uh, Gabriel uh, Prosser's uh, slave revolt in uh, Richmond, uh, which was, uh, it was a complete failure because it had one of the worst rainstorms in the history, thunderstorms in the history of uh, Virginia. And also Nat Turner 
was born that year. So uh, that was a, a very key year. Now you go to what influenced Brown um, to become such an ardent uh, revolutionary. I know that um, abolitionist, he, uh, I know he had strict Calvinist uh, beliefs and uh, a couple of events when he was younger. He, um, I, I think uh, I read in a book where he uh, worked uh, on the Underground Railroad in Ohio. Yeah. Well, his first uh, turn against slavery, uh, his parents were anti-slavery, but at age 12, he was on a cattle drive for his uh, father alone. He was alone. And he came upon a house, um, a farmer that owned an enslaved boy. And uh, the boy was uh, John Brown's age. And uh, John Brown was good friend became good friends of, of the boy, played games with him. And then, but the father, what happened is that the father in the family uh, invited John Brown to dinner and coddled him and said, you're such a good boy. But he hit the slave boy and didn't allow him at the table and drove him out and said, you're going to eat in the barn. And John Brown said later, I was totally infuriated by that moment. And I date my devotion to ending slavery from that very moment at age 12. And then he went on to become very, very active in the Underground Railroad. And, and, and so, and after another key moment in the book here, which I will show again, here it is, John Brown, Abolitionist by David Reynolds. Get this book, it's the best. Everyone's written a book on John Brown, but this is the best book. Um, I really enjoyed reading that. And I read uh, a third of it uh, two days ago. And I went uh, through the forward today. But um, uh, another event that you describe in this book is uh, how Brown was influenced by um, uh, Nat Turner's rebellion and the response that 16 people were hanged. Yeah, in 1831, Nat Turner was an enslaved man in Virginia and he rose up and he and his accomplices murdered 55 uh slave slave owning families and so uh, people in slave owning families and of course he was captured and hanged and so forth he became a martyr for abolitionists for the south for the south nat turner really scared the south so much so that virginia where he lived almost abolished slavery as a result of his uprising fearing further uprising and it's exactly that kind of uh, inspiration that uh, fed into John Brown. John Brown wanted to use a similar kind of uh, situation to uproot slavery totally. And, and, and so you had that event, and the Dred Scott decision bothered him. Also the, um, the beating of uh, Senator Charles Sumner uh, by Preston Brooks, a uh, congressman from South Carolina. Can you tell us about that beating? Uh, Sumner and uh, Brown's response to it. It's in the book. Yeah. Sumner had, uh, Charles Sumner was an anti-slavery uh, uh, senator and he had come out, he had given a speech called The Crime Against Kansas. In, uh, and uh, he was quite hard, very, very harsh on, on pro-slavery views. And then what happened is that a relative, uh, a guy named Preston Brooks, who was a relative of somebody that uh, Sumner had criticized, uh, came into the Senate 
on the Senate floor with a gold-headed cane and said, you know, you have offended my family honor. And Sumner was behind a desk that was nailed to the floor, so he was virtually captive. And the guy just beat, beat Sumner over the head, assumed that he left him for dead because Sumner was bleeding like crazy. Sumner took many years, but he finally uh, recovered. But uh, when this news reached Kansas, John Brown just totally freaked out. Yeah, and, and so, uh, but I, also in the book, you describe how um, Brown actually visited um, Sumner in Massachusetts uh, and uh, just to pay, uh, you know, his um, uh, homage to him. And uh, that's in the book as well. So those are like major events uh, in Brown's life. And uh, what other, uh, was it the uh, Kansas Nebraska Act that kind of uh, drove him crazy too? Yeah, well, he um, really began to become very militant after the Compromise of 1850 and the Fugitive Slave Act, which uh, demanded the return. It really stiffened the uh, um, law against escaped slaves. Right. And he started the League of Gileadites, which is a league of African Americans, uh, in which he dispersed rifles to African-Americans and said, look, if anybody comes chasing you or any of your relatives, please you know, shoot them and kill them. And then what happened, the Kansas-Nebraska Act really upped the ante for him because that opened the Western territories for slavery. And one could say today, well, who cares whether they go to slavery? Well, if Kansas and Nebraska and this, this, this territory, that if they all go to slavery like dominoes, then uh, the American government, which was already pro-slavery, would go almost uh, inevitably uh, pro-slavery. So he went to Kansas and he took action there. He took military action. That was under Franklin Pierce, I think, was president at that time, uh, and yeah. right after Miller Fillmore. Uh, Fugitive Slave Act, and people, I even heard someone who I respect a lot the other day, um, I'm going to mention his name, but was quoting, not from the Fugitive Slave uh, Law, but, uh, but uh, quoting uh, Daniel Webster, because we have this view of Daniel Webster as this great speaker and the defender of the Constitution, uh, but uh, he really was uh, not such a great guy, right? Well, Webster was such a powerful speaker, and Emerson had said, when he speaks, it's like a cannon loaded to the lips. And, you know, he was sort of a magniloquent, eloquent guy, and a northerner and so forth. He was basically anti-slavery, but in March of 1850, he gave his famous March 7th speech in front of the Senate, in which he supported the Compromise of 1850 and the Fugitive Slave Law. So uh, I'll tell you, in the North, he really be, fell fell from grace. He fell from grace in, among anti-slavery people in the North. And he died a couple of year, uh, years later, really in, in disgrace, even though he had been this really great figure. Well, he was Secretary of State under uh, Pierce, if I'm not uh, 
I'm right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, he was. He was. But you see, Pierce himself was a northerner, but he was pro-slavery. And the same with, with Webster as well. So both of them were totally rejected by anti-slavery people in, in the North. Right. Um, so there was a, uh, what's called, uh, tell the people what a Jerry Rescue is. There was the Jerry Rescue up, I think, in Rochester. Uh, that's where it started. It was Roche Syracuse, actually. Uh, Garrett Smith was involved in it. Uh, and Pierce was actually there giving some kind of speech. Uh, and then there were others. There's the, uh, the Burns case, uh, Anthony Burns uh, in 1854. Uh, and Pierce made sure. And I believe Harriet Beecher Stowe was there when Burns was marched to a, uh, a warship and taken back uh, to DC and, and then like remanded to his slave owners. Uh, what, what kind, did Brown ever get involved in these Jerry rescues? Uh, well, I mean, he uh, recruited people because uh, he had like 21 followers uh, at Harper's Ferry when he invaded Harper's Ferry. And, he recruited some people who were involved in slave rescues, and he himself made a very dramatic uh, slave rescue uh, in 1858 when he invaded Missouri and recovered 11 slaves and took them in a wagon across uh, with his uh, uh, fellows across America, 1,100 miles to Detroit and then set the, uh, the slaves free by putting them on a boat that took them to Canada. So, uh, and all the way along he was pursued uh, because Buchan Buchanan, who was then president said, um, I'll give uh, $250 for John Brown's head. And John Brown replied, I'll give $25 for the head of James Buchanan. And, uh, as far as the people that were pursuing him, he just said, you know, it's well known I will not be taken. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be captured. That's all. And a couple of times people attacked him. He re rebuffed them. And he, he even stopped along the way and he went up to a lecturer who, who was saying, an orator, who said, if John Brown were here, I would kill him on the spot. And so John Brown went up to the guy and said, look, here are two guns, Gaden, two pistols. I'm right here. Shoot me. No kidding. And the guy just sort of slunk, he slunk away. It, you know, he, he had this kind of whatever, this moxie. Yeah. And when he got to Detroit, he uh, set the, these slaves free. One of them had been born on the journey and uh, was named John Brown Williams, I think the last name. Anyway. Uh, uh, along the way, a baby was born named after John Brown. And in Detroit, he, he meets up with Frederick Douglass and five other African-Americans, and he tells them about his plan uh, uh, at Harper's Ferry. Yeah, well, there's one meeting uh, at some rock quarry that he and uh, Douglass had uh, where he was trying to entice him to join uh, in the rebellion. In the meantime, Hugh Forbes was given information to Congress uh, several congressmen about John Brown's uh, plans. Uh, so can you address both of those? Yeah, Hugh Forbes was sort of a soldier of fortune who 
John Brown kind of mistakenly believed him and he came over from abroad and trained. He was an Englishman. He came over and he trained some of John Brown's troops. But then he thought that John Brown's plan uh, would fail. And so he kind of revealed the plan to the authorities. But those that heard the news kind of didn't believe it. You know, who would be so crazy as to do this kind of thing? So they kind of dismissed dismissed uh, Forbes's uh, revelations. And as far, shortly before John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry, he met Frederick Douglass, who had been the very first person to whom John Brown had revealed his plans back in 1847. This is 1859, when they meet in the quarry. And in the meantime, they had often known, they, they had visited each other and stayed with each other. They were, they were good friends. And John Brown uh, met him in the quarry uh, in Pennsylvania, Chambersburg, and said, you know, Frederick, if, you know, Harriet Tubman, who supports my cause, she cannot come. He thought that she was ill. She was probably ill up in Canada. She totally supported John Brown. But uh, Harriet can't be here. Can, can you please come? If you come, it's really going to work. This slave rebellion is really going to work. And so because you're really famous and a lot of enslaved people down there are going to rise up and join me. And Douglas said he was, he was torn. He was torn because he admired John Brown so much. He said that later said John Brown, he said, I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for the slave. I see. He really admired John Brown, but he thought that John Brown was going to die. And he said, you're walking into a perfect trap. And so he said, I'm sorry. And he, he told his sidekick, who was a fugitive slave named uh, Shields Green. He said, Mr. Green, let's go back to Rochester. Let, let, let's go home. And Shields Green said, you know, I think I'm going to go with the old men. I think I'm, I think I'm going to go with John Brown. And he did. And you know what? Shields Green was hanged along with John Brown. But I think Shields Green ultimately becomes a really heroic figure here. The fact that he went down uh, with him. And to take us to that day uh, in October at uh, Har Harper's Ferry uh, in, in the aftermath uh, that you so well describe in your book, uh, in that raid and uh, how it was uh, repelled. Yeah, well, uh, John Brown on October 16th, 1859, attacks Harper's Ferry and he does take over the town. He sends his helpers out to uh, take slave owners as hostages to free slaves and, and take their owners as hostages. He brings the hostages back uh, including the grand, great grandson of George Washington and so forth. And he holds them in the fire engine house of Harper's Ferry. Uh, and he has the enslaved people, the former slaves, uh, with spears uh, guarding these uh, slave masters. So there's a dramatic standoff, though, because he delays a little too long. His plan had been to escape to the mountains. Uh, which he knew very well, and then create a kind of group of terror cells in the mountains going southward, which extended all the way to Georgia. 
and then create such unrest from the mountains, a little bit like bin Laden or something, uh, that it would dislodge slavery. But he delayed too long, and he was surrounded by federal troops under uh, Robert E. Lee, and he was uh, captured. He and his men were captured. Some were killed. About 17 people were killed. There were gunshots exchanged. He was taken to to trial and found guilty on three counts and uh, condemned to death, condemned to death, along with five of his co-conspirators. Some of his other uh, soldiers escaped to the north. They managed to escape. Others were captured and were condemned to hang. As, as he was. Yes, well, he gave this uh, fabulous speech. I know that when news, um, when news uh, reached the North, there were a lot of people that uh, really became supporters of John Brown, and I believe that they became more inspired. I can't believe that that wouldn't be the catalyst for the Civil War, that everyone at that point said, all right. And then, of course, Lincoln, which we're going to talk about after this quick break in a minute, uh, I, John Brown's legacy at this party in uh, Medford, uh, uh, Massachusetts, uh, held by one of the Secret Six, uh, George Stearns. Um, you, it, they were they were basically celebrating. Emerson was there. I don't know if Thoreau was there. I think he had died by then. But you 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 posit that it was because of uh, the transcendentalists who were not so good early on uh, on slavery, especially Emerson. He kind of evolved. But uh, they're the ones that uh, uh, kind of re-burnished uh, his, uh, his legacy. Can you tell us about that. Yeah, the transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry, Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau, of course, lived in a cabin by himself and meditated and all that. And we tend not to think of them as uh, abolitionists or anti-slavery people, but it was really because of them, those two, that John Brown became famous because even the ardent abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, Henry Ward Beecher, a few other people were saying, well, Brown's motives were, were, were very good, but his methods were bad. But Thoreau, you know, came, uh, he, he gave his speech, a plea for Captain John Brown uh, while Brown was still in jail and said that John Brown cannot be tried by his peers, cannot be tried in, in court by his peers because his peers do not exist. His peers do, you know. Um, and uh, he said that, you know, John Brown stood up against a totally corrupt social system. And we talk about the great heroes of the past and he even went to, to say so far as a lot of people plan to die. And he says, you know, you're not going to die. You're going to just wilt away and fade away. John Brown is going to die. Why, why is he going to die? He's going to die for a cause. Cause. He's going to die for a cause, for a principle. And when he said that, it, it, and also when uh, Emerson came along uh, about a month later and said, John Brown is going to make the, ga- the gallows as glorious as the cross. And when Emerson said something, he didn't say something political very often, but when he said something political, it was like a bullet that ricocheted around the, uh, the popular culture. And suddenly Emerson said that John Brown is like Jesus Christ. You know, are you kidding me? You know, so uh, 
it really salvaged uh, John Brown's uh, reputation. Right. Also, Melville uh, called him the meteor, and I believe Billy Budd may be an allusion uh, to uh, John Brown, uh, his book, uh, Billy Budd. Yeah, uh, Melville wrote a, a very moving poem after the Civil War, looking back on John Brown, and called him the meteor of the war, the you know the predictor of the war. And then Billy Budd, which uh, Melville writes shortly before he dies in 1891, he portrays an innocent and Christ-like figure named Billy Budd, who is wrongly charged with a crime. Actually, he does commit the crime, but the crime, because he, he does commit murder. However, uh, he does it for a good reason. If you read the story, you'll see right. what I mean. And he therefore becomes a Christ figure. So in a sense, he becomes a redaction uh, or a variation on, on John Brown. Right, well, that's, uh, I, I read the book a long time ago, but I saw the movie recently, and Robert Ryan plays such a nasty character in that, uh -huh. you know, worse than Blythe. Yeah. He's worse than Blythe. So, uh, <laughs> We're going to take a, a quick music break and come right back and talk about some abolitionist uh, journalists and then talk about your, your new, new book on Abe Lincoln. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, this is um, uh, Blow uh, Ye the Trumpet Blow. We'll be right back in just uh, a minute. Okay, uh, that is uh, Blow the, the Trumpet Blow, and it was uh, written by uh, Charles Wesley, if I'm not mistaken, right? In the, in the, yeah, it was, it was John Brown's uh, favorite hymn. Right. And it was sung at his funeral, and he used to sing, well, he used to sing hymns all the time to his children. He had a total of 20, 20 children. And uh, that was one one of the hymns that that he sang. I see. And 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 in the book, uh, John Brown, uh, this uh, this in the introduction, the first chapter, 
you talk about this party uh, by George Stearns and uh, Frederick Douglass was there and he actually, that was one of his favorite tunes, right? It was one of his favorite tunes and it's um, a very inspiring song. Uh, it's a hymn uh, about the day of Jubilee coming and the end of, uh, you know, the bad days and the beginning of the good ones. And, and both of, uh, a lot of anti-slavery people saw that hymn as extremely inspiring for the advent of a time of freedom. freedom. It's, 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 it's such a beautiful melody. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was just that was just the instrumental, as you know, that we played, uh, and uh, the melody is so nice. Um, now I want to go back. All right, another another uh, figure that Brown was upset about, uh, and that's in 1837, was the uh, murder of uh, a journalist uh, by the name of Elijah Lovejoy. And uh, tell us about Elijah Lovejoy and other journalists back then that went against the slave power and how dangerous it was. Yeah, Elijah Lovejoy uh, um, at the time lived in Missouri and he published an anti-slavery newspaper. And he was basically kind of forced out of Missouri across the river uh, to, uh, to uh, um, uh, Illinois, I mean, uh, to nearby Illinois, Alton, Illinois. He went to Illinois. And he uh, published an anti-slavery newspaper there, and he was attacked by a lot of pro-slavery crowds, mobs of people that surrounded him. And he came out with a rifle and uh, kind of faced down the crowd. But I mean, there were hundreds of people there, and he was shot. Uh, and his pre his um, press was uh, torn apart. The building was torn apart, and the press was thrown into into the river. And there were several other uh, anti-slavery newspaper uh, people at that time, like George Burney in Cincinnati, and his press. He published an anti-slavery newspaper as well, and his his newspaper. Um, Machinery was cast uh, into the river and uh, so forth. So it was, you know, it was a very, very harsh time for anti-slavery uh, people. William Lloyd Garrison, who pub published the uh, Liberator, was dragged on a rope through the streets of Boston, through the streets of Boston. And he probably would have been lynched, except he was taken into protective custody by the sheriff of uh, Boston. There were a lot of journalists uh, back then. I, I'll even uh, would say that the gentleman who wrote the uh, book, uh, uh, the uh, David Walker's Appeal, uh, I think in 1833, that was, that was probably one of the best written uh, petitions or whatever you would call it, uh, uh, treatises, uh, against slavery. What, was he possibly murdered uh, as a result of poison? Well, that's kind of the, that is the rumor, and it certainly could have been, because when he published his appeal in the late 1820s, it created such incredible controversy. It was such a strong, he was an African-American uh, guy who was uh, if anybody wants to read an anti-slavery document, 
from an African-American writer. I mean, it was so powerful. Yeah, you can get that online, by the way. What's you, that? You can get that online. Yes. Walker's Appeal. The Appeal by David Walker. David Walker. And, you know, it's, it's very, very powerful. And it's almost as powerful as something by uh, Frederick Douglass. But you're right. The, the uh, circumstances of his death are still unknown, although rather suspect. Well, we live in a day now where journalists are um, uh, in Mexico uh, have been killed and in, in all over, um, you know, in Eastern Europe and, and Asia. They get, I mean, they're under threat. Ones who tell the truth. A woman in Malta uh, was killed. Uh, we have a guy in, uh, that's about to be, Julian Assange, is about to be uh, brought to this country on espionage charges. And uh, the President Trump's war on journalism, uh, war on the press, uh, just for a minute, I'm going to get right back into John, uh, back to that era. But just uh, your thoughts about um, uh, Trump's war and uh, calling the press the enemy of the people. Well, you know the the press, the press uh, in America, a democratic press, is exactly uh, the best check we have on falsehood. Not that the press is always right, uh, but what I'm saying is that, you know, when you write a newspaper story nowadays, you have to do your research. You have to try to uh, get to some facts. And um, even if sometimes the facts are interpreted differently from the left, left wing and right wing and so forth, even that de debate itself, uh, is is valuable um but i think that the uh, the effort of trump to call the uh, press the enemy uh, of the people is an example of how i think that frankly donald trump almost everything he says if you say exactly the opposite you'll be correct <laughs> hate to say it but it's true <laughs> you know it's much easier to count the times he's told the truth than it is to count the times that he's told a lie you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah, I need a calculator for the latter, and I need two hands uh, for the former when he tells the truth. Uh, so getting back to those journalists back then, you had Garrison told that story, you had David, David Walker, uh, and you had also writers must have been uh, under attack. Uh, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe probably uh, got threats, and uh, people like Richard Hildreth. Well, what happened to us that, uh, when Stowe published her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852, which was nine years before the Civil War, uh, it was a bestseller, sold over a million copies uh, internationally, over 300,000 copies uh, in America. However, it was very, very controversial. And uh, she was completely blasted in the South, denigrated, you know, she was considered absolute horror, horror. And she received in the mail a piece, piece of cardboard with the ear of an enslaved person that had been sliced off and uh, pinned to a piece of cardboard. And the message inside was, this is for your defense of the I won't use the N-word, but they use the N-word. Uh, 
and that was the on, only note that she received. So she she had to be uh, quite careful. And when she spoke in public, well, she didn't really speak in public. She allowed her husband to speak. She wanted to come off as kind of ladylike and so forth. And here she had uh, published this incredibly controversial novel that was beloved by millions of people in, in the North. But it was so castigated in the South that one free, free African-American man who had a copy of her novel in his home was put to jail for 10 years. He was even for having her novel in, in his home. Fortunately, he escaped during the Civil War and he made his, made his way north, but still, you know. She, she was a very humble individual. She, um, as it says in this book, uh, here that you can get, you can get this book and you really got to read it. This is such a great read, uh, along with all of your books. Uh, on, uh, we're not going to have time to get into Whitman because I, Whitman, um, Whitman uh, supposedly was influenced by the, uh, by the Anthony Burns uh, case uh, I read. Uh, and if you talk about Anthony Burns, which was one of the greatest events uh, up until the resolution, but the way everybody kind of mobilized uh, up there in Boston with Theodore Parker. There you go. Let me ask about Theodore Parker uh, and, and the role that he played, because he was a, a publisher as well and a firebrand and a uh, really a, a radical guy, right? And very religious. Yeah, Theodore Parker was a uh, kind of a transcendentalist. He was a Unitarian minister. And he helped a lot of enslaved people get free. Uh, and uh, he was a total supporter of uh, John Brown. He was one of the people who tried to save Anthony Burns, who was captured in Boston and finally taken in chains to the South. But Parker and his fellow transcendentalists had tried to save him very, very militant, and one of the uh, secret six who supported John Brown. Yeah. Ms. Parker, Ms. Parker. That was, there is a book called The Trial of Anthony Burns, which I recommend that people read. Um, uh, because of that book, I, uh, it's not your book. I, I recommend people just looking up your name, uh, uh, David S. Reynolds, and uh, just there's, there's like 18 gems there, I believe, you've written or edited. Uh, and plus, I'm from California. The fact that you went to the University of California at Berkeley uh, right. is a place in my heart. And, uh, and that you're from uh, Rhode Island, I believe. You were like born. Yeah, I'm originally from Rhode Island. And I grew up in Barrington, uh, actually in a lighthouse, which is a reconvert. It was built, the lighthouse was built in 1828, but then they added a multi-room house onto it. And we lived in, in the house. And then I went to Amherst College uh, in Massachusetts. Then I got my doctorate at Berkeley. And uh, that was back in the 70s. And then I lived in Chicago for a while because uh, I taught at Northwestern. And now I teach at uh, CUNY, City University of New York, uh, in New York City. New York City. Uh, it's got a great history, City University of New York. It really does. Um, a lot of great uh, writers uh, went to the city uh, university. Are you from Berkeley? Is that? Are you from Berkeley? No, no, I'm fr actually from, I'm nearby uh, 
Claremont, California, a city called Pomona, where I had five colleges I didn't get into, but uh, those were the 60s. I was 14 years old and was smoking too much pot and doing yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I never made it to that level. But, uh, but I spent a lot of time in Berkeley because I've done a lot of radio shows uh, out of Berkeley at KPFA uh, in Berkeley, California. It's a great city. Uh, I want to just get back to um, Harriet Beecher Stowe one more time here because this is, in this book, uh, which is, you may have been the catalyst, uh, you talk about this in here and people thought, now that book, it's like the first anti-slavery novel, but this one here, and this is just a paperback. I got the original copy of this book called The White Slave by Richard Hildreth, which is a novel as well. And some people think that maybe she was inspired by this book, although she says she was inspired by God and she was just a vehicle. So what do you make of Hildreth's writing? I really admired, I really admire uh, Hildreth, Richard Hildreth, because now he was a Bostonian who had gone to Harvard, but he comes out in the 1830s, which is quite early for that period, with a slave narrative. And when I first read it, I didn't know, know it was by Hildreth because it was published uh, anonymously, the memoirs of Archie Moore. And later in your edition, it's called The White Slave. It came out in 1852, later uh, as The White Slave. But, and when I researched and said by, by Hildreth, it's really a, you know, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful book. It did inspire Harry. It wasn't the only inspiration in Harry Beecher Stowe, but it was one of the inspirations. And Hildreth, yes, he was a, a, a white Bostonian, but he was very anti-slavery. And even before a lot of the famous slave narratives like Frederick Douglass, which comes out in 1845, uh, and the William Webb and the Harriet Jacobs and so forth. He comes out in 1839 with this uh, memoirs of Archie Moore and quite quite powerful rendition, first person rendition of uh, being enslaved. And he goes on to write uh, several books against slavery. He becomes an anti-slavery editor. He also writes a fabulous history of the United, the United States which even to this very day uh, is a wonderful record of early America. Yeah, you know, it goes to the 16th Congress is where he ends. Uh, and I do have the six volume set. I got so I started uh, way back when I got into him, I started buying like, I don't know why, but original copies uh, on uh, of Hildreth, including uh, the one you alluded to is Despotism in America. And that was an anti-slavery uh, book. That was an anti-slavery book and a very powerful one. Um, and as I say, he does become very heavily involved in the New York Tribune, which is the major anti-slavery uh, newspaper. He becomes a support supporter of Lincoln, but at that time he becomes ill and he passes away. But uh, he was an, an important figure and uh, someone who is forgotten, lar largely forgotten. He's uh, buried along with Theodore Parker in the Protestant Cemetery in um, not Venice, but uh, not Bologna, but uh, somewhere in, in Florence. In, in Florence. That's right. In Florence. Yeah. Right. So another book, another book that he wrote, he actually edited a book called uh, 
uh, atrocious judges, and, and he just by Lord uh, Campbell. Uh, and at the end, he puts an appendix, and I have that version too. Um, and it's it, it kind of goes through the trial of uh, or the trials and tribulations of Passmore Williamson, uh, who rescued did a Jerry rescue in Pennsylvania. He was with the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery uh, Society. It's a, it's a real moving story. Uh, how he was stuck in jail and he was there and it became an international story in this dungeon that he stayed in. But that's for another day. Uh, let's um, now uh, take, uh, we're not going to take a break. We're, we're, we're going to, uh, you just mentioned Lincoln. He was friends with Joshua Speed, I think, Kildred, is what I read somewhere. He was close friends. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I've heard that too. Uh, I don't know too, too much, uh, too many details, but of course, Joshua Speed becomes the closest friend of Lincoln, so yeah. yeah. Well, now I have not even read the, the notes on the new book on, called Abe. This is your, your latest book on Abe uh, Lincoln. Uh, and there's been a lot of books on Abe Lincoln. Can you tell us um, uh, what this book uh, covers that uh, might be uh, something uh, that we have not read about on Lincoln? Yeah, sure. Uh, there have been more than 16,000 books written on Lincoln, and uh, including many superb biographies and so forth. Mine is what I call a cultural biography. So I hold him, hold him up against his contemporary culture, the popular culture, which he was really immersed in. Uh, he had less, less than one year of education, most, mostly primary education. Yeah, uh, and this was on the frontier, so his education was like nothing. And yet, he was an omnivorous reader. Reader, he was infinitely curious about the world around him. And by the time he was president, he could recite Shakespeare by the page. And he did this not to to brag or impress people. He just did it when he felt the emotion of the moment um, deserved it. And, um, but not only, see, I'm interested in the way Lincoln spans from high culture, people like Shakespeare, and uh, Lincoln knew the opera and so forth, to really low culture. He told body, body jokes and he knew very crass uh, frontier humor and so forth. And uh, Emerson uh, uh, called him the greatest example we have of someone who spanned cultural levels. So I'm really interested in my, in my uh, cultural biography of showing the many different levels from popular humor to songs, popular songs to, to opera to Shakespeare and so forth. And to, to sort of say how that fed into his wisdom, his wisdom as a uh, statesman. Well, he, um... Uh, definitely was a great example of uh, what uh, the benefits of homeschooling, which most people are now undergoing. I, I, I want people out there, if you've got children and, and, and you are in lockdown, uh, you should uh, have them uh, watch this show, but they should uh, get uh, this book, Abe, and you should read that. You read the book to them. Uh, that would be a great way to get a, 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 a really, uh, not just your book, all your books, but uh, homeschooling and get you can get stuff that's not in the curriculum that's kind of shut out 
history books uh, in public and private schools. So I think right now is a great opportunity for, for people to really educate their kids like Abe Lincoln. I mean, was his mother part of, of his uh, homeschooling or he just was like, you know, on his own would go and get books? How did he afford books? Well, he, he grew up on the frontier until age nine. He lived in Kentucky in a one room, room log cabin. And then they moved to Indiana frontier and they lived in a similar small uh, place, basically one room with, with a loft. And yeah, it was very difficult to get books, uh, but he would borrow, he would do anything to, to, to borrow a book from uh, a distant neighbor. He actually at one point had to walk four miles every day to school, four miles there, four miles back just to get to school. And the reason he didn't get more schooling is back then the, particularly the male children were expected to work for the family. So he was, he was really meant to work, you know, for, uh, for the family. And uh, so his father put him to work and then he loved to go to school, but he kind of begged, borrowed and stealed. Not, not, he didn't stole, but I mean, he, uh, you know, really went to any length to read a book and he fed his mind as much as possible. And as he grew older, he actually could borrow more books uh, from libraries and so forth. And, and that's basically how he, uh, he acquired his knowledge. And he became such a great writer and speaker. Yeah. He, uh, when he was in Congress, he opposed the, um, uh, the war in, uh, against Mexico. Uh, I, I believe, uh, and uh, against uh, what was it? What was the who's the president back? Uh, Polk, uh, Polk, and, and I know he opposed that. But but then there was you know there's some comment in 1850 that he actually supported the fugitive slave law, and that's when Emerson uh, lost his. Uh, uh, you know I don't know what year it was, but somebody had some ill things to say about uh, this man who was already making a name for himself. Yeah. Uh that was the year that Wendell Phillips called him the slave hound from Illinois. And Lincoln hated the, the law, he hated it, but why did he lend support to it, a grudging, very grudging support to it? The Constitution does have a clause saying about re return, the necessity to return fugitives from labor. As a clause, uh, and he always wanted to remain within the rule of the Constitution. Even Walt Whitman, who was very, very strongly anti-slavery, said we have to. And and he supported uh, uh, fugitive slaves in his writings. Walt Whitman did. He said, well, the Const Constitution says we have to do this. So. Uh, Lincoln actually alienated a lot of people because he said, unfortunately, we have to support the law. The law. Yeah, well, uh, I know he, uh, 10 years later, he gave that great speech at Cooper Union, which I, uh, a couple of years back, uh, I think it was uh, 2014, I, uh, 13, I had the uh, great honor of working with Pete Seeger, who uh, uh, played, did that night, did, did the John Brown uh, body uh, tune at Cooper Union. What a great uh, experience that was. Uh, but 
uh, prior to that, when he ran for president, or actually afterwards, after the Cooper Union speech, uh, this song comes out. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do. We're getting close to the end here. Uh, you uh, actually performed this tune. It's called uh, Lincoln and Liberty Tune. It may be the best uh, campaign tune ever written. Uh, really, not, not since 1860 have we seen something this catchy and with this melody. And uh, uh, here, uh, you actually, we're going to take a second, you actually performed it, I think this was at the New School? Well, it was at the Graduate Center where I teach. And a friend of mine named Steve Vitoff, who plays uh, piano, we got together and we decided to give a performance of Lincoln and Liberty. Um, it was Hold it right there. Hold it right there. Let's just play that and talk about it on the other side. This is, uh, this is uh, David Reynolds uh, on the... Uh, on the piano or on his Yamaha, and uh, we're going to play about 30 seconds of it. Oh, the choice of a nation, our chieftain so brave and so true. We'll go for the great reformation, for Lincoln and Liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero of Hoosier Okay, not bad, David. So tell us about Thank that. You. The pr production value may be a little bit, you know, is uh, done on a uh, re uh, handheld recorder, but still, you know, it was fun. And it is called the song that got Lincoln elected, which may be an exaggeration, but it was a very, very powerful song. Yeah, well, who, I, I, I first of all, it, it was uh, this guy by the name of Hutchinson, Jesse Hutchinson, that wrote it, the Hutchinson family, they wrote that campaign song. Yeah, they were a... They were a family of 13 very talented children who uh, would, usually they sang four or five at a time, but Jesse was the songwriter and they became like the Beatles of their time or something or whatever. Very, very, po very popular group. And they were very, very anti-slavery and very, very pro-Lincoln. Yeah, well, I got to tell you something. Maybe it did help, uh, but uh, I know the lyrics are different. The lyrics are different. When we go out, we're going to play a different, uh, the Weavers, Ronnie Gilbert, I, I think, uh, uh, added lyrics to it. Uh, but uh, I, I play occasionally, and it really is a catchy uh, tune. It uh, is. It really is, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, the book is called Abe, and how can people get that book? Well, you can pre-order Abe. Uh, which is the subtitle Abraham Lincoln in his times uh, on Amazon, any of the online bookstores or from Penguin. My publisher is Penguin. So it'll be out in ebook. It, the official pub date is September 29th. So uh, you can get the physical book then. And probably the ebook will appear at that time. I'm sure there'll be an audio book. And we're talking also about 
I can't too, talk too much about this specifically, but we've sold it to uh, a certain film film company as well. So. Yeah. Well, you have a really good angle on it, what you just described there. Uh, they don't give you too much when you research it, uh, but it's a beautiful looking book. But I saw Emblazoned Abe. I didn't see, I didn't know that was the subtitle uh, by David S. Reynolds. And um, uh, people can get a lot of your books online. Uh, I think I got this one at Amazon uh, in 2007, 2008. It's called, and that's the theme today, John Brown. And of course, uh, the abolition movement. I, I could really... You know, if you take any year in the 1850s, you could do a whole hour on any particular year, maybe two hours on. So to try to do this in an hour and, uh, you know, talk about Abe, talk about Hildreth, talk about uh, John Brown and Harriet Beecher Stowe and all of those characters. That's a time, you know, I romanticize about that time in American history that I wish I were around. So do I. Even though it was a very challenging time. Um... It was such an exciting time with so many incredible people and people who really stood for principle, principle. And, and they were willing in some cases to give up their life for, for principle. Some people would give up their office, you know, um, uh, William Seward, uh, who defended uh, after he was governor of New York and before he was senator, uh, he had defended uh, Willie Freeman, who had... Um, uh, murdered a uh, guy was in Auburn jail and uh, he slaughtered six people had gone crazy and he invoked this uh, insanity plea and and uh, the Supreme Court uh, overturned the, uh, the decision of the court and it was about to go back to trial and then Freeman died but you know his guy I forgot his name his guru uh, said don't do this but he went on to be senator and he gave that higher power speech and you don't see politicians doing that today he was willing to risk everything on principle, William Seward, and he doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Thaddeus yeah. Stevens and, and several other people. It's just, just, it's an inc incredible era, as as you say. Really. Yeah, that that that, and, and a lot of the women, the Massachusetts, the female uh, Massachusetts anti-slavery society. It was really a hotbed, Massachusetts, as it was in upstate New York with Garrett Smith and all. I, I could talk to you all day long, and we'll definitely get do this again when the book Aid comes back, all right? So um, I want to thank you, Professor Reynolds. Thank you very much, Randy. It was great. Okay, uh, folks, uh, we're not gone yet, all right? Uh, we... Uh, we uh, want to just get one last word uh, from uh, David Reynolds uh, about uh, 1860 uh, and the crisis then and uh, what's happening right now, what this president is doing in, in, in a national emergency uh, like secession was. Yeah, well, actually, the national emergency that Lincoln, fa Lincoln faced in 1860 was far worse than the crisis we're, we're facing today because what happened then was that 11 states actually left America. They left the United States. They became another nation. They, at least they called themselves another nation. So when Lincoln assumed office, uh, all these states had supposedly left the Union. So what were you going to do? And he treated this with real firmness from the beginning. Uh, uh, most of the, seven out of the eight advisors around him said, no, 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 
uh, let the South, uh, you know, make a few compromises with the South. But he was very firm, almost like, let's say, Trump at the beginning of coronavirus said, you know, I'm going to put a total lockdown on this right, ne- right now after the first case of coronavirus. I'm just going to, you know, shut it down. Um, and he was, and, and so when um, uh, Fort Sumter was threatened by, in South Carolina, he continued to advance the supply ships to the fort there, which is a, is a federal property. And he knew that the South would probably attack the North. It did. It provoked him. And instant, instantly he took, took very militant action in yeah. the Civil War. He says, there's no way I'm going to let this situation continue. And then he pursued that war until the South and slavery were defeated. And all the way along, he never once criticized the enemy. He never badmouthed any, anybody. And at the end of the war, he said, charity for all, charity for all. Well, he's amazing. it's amazing because you have these Republicans right now, they say, we're the party of Lincoln. This is not the party of Lincoln. No, 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 no. The Republican Party today has absolutely nothing to do with the party of Lincoln. They're exactly the opposite of the party of Lincoln. He was a Republican, but the Republicans were what today would be called the liberal party. Today, they would be called the liberal party. And Lincoln believed in, in a big government that, and a strong government and a huge government that helped the marginalized, the enslaved, the outcast. And he, he was always thinking about uh, the lesser people. Uh, people. People did visit him to ask for pardons. Right there would be, he would open the door. I know Frederick Douglass came in there many times, but he would keep the door open for grieving families that had uh, someone that was about to be executed to give him a pardon. He often became criticized in the North because he was, he was a little, little too merciful. His basic instinct was to, to pardon. So, because if you were a deserter and you wanted to go back to your family, you deserted the war. And supposedly he was supposed to be shot. And he heard some people being shot fairly regularly from the White House, and he used to cry about that. But he would pardon as many people as possible, and he saw regular people on a normal basis, at least twice weekly. Normal people would come in and talk with him and tell him how, how they felt on, on a face-to-face basis. Right. So how would you, how would you uh, compare the way he... He handled the emergency of, of uh, these 11 states seceding from the Union and the way uh, Trump is, uh, has handled. I mean, if Lincoln was in charge right now, certainly he would have had a different approach. Yeah, certainly. Trump uh, demon, demonizes uh, the so-called left-wing media and dem- radical Democrats and all of that. Lincoln absolutely refused to speak ill of his opponents. Right. He never said really a bad word about, he said a bad word about slavery, the institution of slavery, which he opposed, but he never said a bad word about Southerners or his, his opponents. Right, I mean, he even, even brought in a Democrat to be his, uh, his running mate in 1864, right? Yeah, 
Uh, Andrew Jackson was was a Democrat. He had been a slaveholder. In, 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 uh, 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 I mean, uh, Andrew Johnson. I'm sorry, Andrew Johnson had been a uh, Democrat, and he was the governor of Tennessee, and he helped keep Tennessee loyal. Finally, Tennessee went with the Confederacy, but um, Andrew Johnson was was uh, uh, you know loyal to the Union and so forth. And Lincoln was trying to reach out to uh, to the other side. Well, he would have he would he would have won that race anyway with him. But was he nervous that he might lose to uh, McClellan? Well, in August, before the November election of eighteen sixty four, Lincoln actually wrote a note saying it's probable that I'm going to uh, lose the election. So he wrote a. Uh, note that he put in a letter uh, to his cabinet to be to be opened after the election, and just saying I'm here to make the transition. I'm I want to make the a smooth transition to my opponent, but that was at a moment when uh, the military situation looked really bad uh, for the North. But then in September, just a few days later, uh, Sherman uh, was advancing through Georgia on the march to the sea. And on the march to Atlanta and uh, Farragut and Mobile Bay and Grant in Virginia, they were suddenly all doing very well. It turned the tide, and Lincoln fairly handily won won the election. Right, but that that may have been his only uh, gaffe uh, by putting him on because of uh, what he did to try to uh, reverse all of the uh, gains uh, uh, for Reconstruction uh, and keeping the troops. Yeah. Johnson, his former uh, uh, vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, had been very anti-slavery and everything. And it was a gaffe, although it was chosen by, at that time, the vice president was chosen by the party convention. It was not, uh, it was not chosen by Lincoln. I don't think he would have chosen um, Andrew Johnson. And uh, he kind of knew Johnson and he respected him for being loyal to the union. But I mean, Johnson was obviously a yeah, or, yeah, the horror show. Uh, but the election went on that year. Uh, you know, people are nervous that Trump might cancel this election or find ways uh, to win uh, by uh, you know pulling some tricks here and there. We know there's going to be uh, always uh, minority uh, voter suppression. Uh, but um, but that that convention went on in 1864 and the election went on in spite of being in the middle of this big, the biggest crisis, domestic crisis in the history of the country. Yeah, I mean, it was as bad or even worse than, than COVID or whatever. But yeah, I mean, uh, and Lincoln was, he was proud to be elected, but he was even more proud that an election took place during that year. He's, you know, I'm stunned and that makes me really believe in the American system that uh, the election was, was held, yeah. Yeah, well, boy, that's another reason why I wish I lived back then rather than right now. Anyway, uh, David, <laughs> David S. Reynolds, uh, we got the John Brown book, we got Mightier Than the Sword by David S. Reynolds about uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the book Abe, all right? Get that book, Abe, it's coming out in a few months, and uh, teach your children well. All right, we're going to play, I'm not sure it's as good as your version, but we're going to go out right now. We'll be back on the other side with some closing remarks. This is uh, the Weaver's version of uh, 
Lincoln and Liberty too. We'll be right back. Thank you, David. Thank you. For the choice of the nation, our chieftain's so brave and so true. We'll go for the great reformation, for Lincoln and liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero of Hoosier and through. The pride of the suckers so lucky, for Lincoln and liberty too. Then up with the banner so glorious. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly. Uh, I know many of you know this is Randy Critical Live on the Fly, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, and uh, go to the website. We've got 20 episodes in uh, this special uh, show that we're dedicating to a great activists and great uh, writers who were under, uh, under threat in the uh, 19th century uh, by the, by the uh, slave power in this country, uh, journalists, uh, novelists, uh, all uh, people that uh, did uh, uh, pamphleteers and uh, petitioners, all of those uh, types, uh, journalists under fire in this country. It has a long history. Uh, and I, I just want to thank everybody who was involved in this show today. I want to thank uh, Kelly Lane uh, here in North Carolina, slave state. <laughs> and then, of course, a free state uh, editor uh, back in the 1850s, California. Uh, that would be Jimmy Sunderland. So uh, we're going to be doing a lot of these. You go to our website uh, and support our Assange series. It's Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, because we'd like to do more of these shows, and we will. Uh, we got all the way until the election, uh, or not, almost uh, September before he goes uh, back into that horror show in, uh, in the Balmorish. So uh, we do need uh, your support. Uh, we are uh, walking a, a tightrope here trying, we wanna do this every 
at least once a week. We did three of them last week. So it's important to get the information out there and uh, we'll try to keep it as entertaining as possible. Uh, once again, thank you all. Thanks, Sarah Kunstler and Margaret Ratner Kunstler for uh, being uh, the ones that uh, do the website and then write the uh, descriptions of the show. And if I'm out of the Scandinavia, if you're out there, people are worried, please check in. Thank you very much. And uh, once again, uh, this is, uh, we played it before, this is John Brown's Body, but by Paul Robeson. See you in a few days. Thank you very much. Oh,